and it's the Titterpigs, the RPG podcast. Am I getting paid for this one? Eiskalten Winter ist nichts dahinter, auch nicht im März. Nur vom April bis zum Juni lässt mich in Runi das dumme Herz. Fast wird so Kummer, mein Haar weiß, alles geht wahr. All right, welcome back to another episode of Titter Pigs. Uh, today we have with us David Larkin in the studio. David is the line editor. Uh, David, correct me if I get any of this wrong, but he is the line editor and manager for Chaosium's Pendragon product line. Uh, he has graciously agreed to come hang out with Scott and I in the studio for, I think this is going to be episode 12. Oh, God help us, Scott. We are we're in double digits, my friend. Wow. Um, yeah. It's a milestone. We've, we've hit a milestone. So, David, hey, welcome to, the, welcome to Titter Pigs. Um, this is awesome, my friend. Thanks for being here with us. Well, thanks so much for having me, and, and congrats on making double digits. I think the average <laughs> lifespan of a podcast is like four or five episodes, so you guys are well past that. You're yeah. good. We've You're cruising. Uh, we've reached our seven-year itch. We uh, we did get couples therapy, and we made it through, and we Great. got our groove back. So, yes, we're, we're, we're smooth sailing from here. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yes, uh, th- uh, thank you, David. I, I do appreciate uh, you coming on likewise, and uh, this is... Definitely looking forward to this uh, for a while. I know Keith going to be taking the helm in the Pendragon discussion, but one of the other things that we'd like to discuss here is uh, Berlin, uh, which I've been spending quite a bit of time with, and uh, you know, well, I'll go into more detail of that later. But but first, if you wouldn't mind, uh, for for those who are listening, for our you know our what do we call our Titter Pig people? Uh, do we have a name for them yet? Just followers, fans. Uh, we're not going to do piglets or any silly no, things. No, like we that. no, we're not calling them piglets <laughs> or well, anything we'll, else. We'll workshop <laughs> that later. Uh, but uh, but anyways, for the, for our listeners who you know may not be familiar with you or who haven't uh, listened to you on other podcasts, uh, if you can just uh, you know inform them uh, you know a little bit about who you are, a little bit of your background, and uh, you know what your your involvement is with Chaosium and, and Pendragon. Yeah, sure. Well, um, as mentioned, I'm the line editor uh, for the Pendragon RPG, which is sort of my primary gig right now. Um, I've been working in the um, tabletop RPG writing, editing field for about seven years now, actually, because it was July 2015 that I quit my job and (laughs) went for it. So, yeah, seven years. And I've primarily worked for Chaosium. We have a few other projects that are sort of out there in the you know waiting for their time to go on a kickstarter or you know what have you but yeah mostly i work for chaosium uh call of cthulhu pendragon uh room quest i even worked on a 7c book so i'm sort of obviously trying to wear every hat i can at the company right and um yeah, I don't know. I, that's that's my professional side. I've been gaming for about 30 years now, uh, you know, just as a 
as a hobby, as a lifestyle, really. Right. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. So um, I was, uh, you know, listening to some other podcasts that you were on and, uh, you know, we won't we tend to do the usual, you know, where it was your entry point in RPGs and, and whatnot. But uh, yours is a little bit different than most uh, one that I've shared before. But, you know, just if you if you wouldn't mind just indulging me on on that also. <laughs> yeah, of course. Uh, so, yeah, as I've, as I've talked about once or twice. Elsewhere, uh, I got into gaming through the Lone Wolf uh, game books, mm-hmm. um, which was sort of part of that whole uh, thing in the 80s with right. these supercharged choose your own adventure books. Final Fantasy, I think, is the more famous example. Mm-hmm. What I really liked about the Lone Wolf books, though, was that they were, uh, you know, I didn't know at the time and have these words, but they essentially were an RPG campaign because you played a persistent character through the whole series as you, you know, uh, gathered items or, you know, other experiences that might come back around in later books. It just created a real engaging experience. And plus the world that those books are set in was originally a D&D campaign world from the author's home game. So, when I got into RPGs shortly thereafter, everything was very familiar to me already. You know, I kind of knew the tropes. I knew the the assumptions. It was just like kind of taking it to the next level. And so game books were a great introduction for me. Right, right. Yeah, mine, mine wasn't, wouldn't necessarily be called a game book, but it did lead to the other ones like Lone Wolf. My introduction was a friend of mine in elementary school gave me a copy of his Return to Brookmere the uh, Endless Quest books from uh, TSR by Rose Estes, yeah. uh, another fantastic entry point, and which led to other ones as the book fair came to town. So, which brought with it Lone Wolf, which brought with it uh, Fighting Fantasy, How to Be an Interplanetary Spy, Middle Earth Quest, and a lot of those were jumping points for me to eventually go to my my friend's house, whose father owned a copy of uh, Dungeons and Dragons, like, ooh, what is this? This seems to be made by those people who made Endless Quest. Uh, <laughs> they must be yeah. branching out. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's, that's something I like to hear is, is you know, the, not the atypical entry into RPGs when I hear someone go, oh no, game books were uh, my entry point. I'm like, ah, oh, someone else. <laughs> God, see, I missed all of that. Yeah. Yeah, no, no it, mine was Menser's Red Box in like 83, maybe early 84 is like a gift when I was like eight years old or thereabouts. And that was my entry at fighting the rust monster, sitting on my bed as a kid, fighting the rust monster, mm-hmm. getting my ass kicked every time I come up across the rust monster. I still have it out for that rust monster. Mm-hmm. Yep. Still to this day, 47 years old, I still have it out for the rust monster. Yeah. Well, it's oh. then you don't know the joy of rolling your dice with these game books and looking over your shoulder and going, Maybe we'll just fudge this one uh, yeah. rather than start all over. <laughs> no, I, I know that joy because the Rust Monster, that was a solo adventure in the red box set. I know that joy. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was it was a thing. And, you know, and, and it's funny, too, because um, I would read those Lone Wolf books to a friend uh, also in addition to doing playing them myself myself. And so I was kind of GMing the books, basically, because uh, I was letting the friend make the choices. Mm-hmm. And I just read it out loud. And then my first experience with D&D, coincidentally, was a different friend who had the red box and ran me through that solo tutorial session in the yeah. same way where he was reading it out to me nice. and uh, letting me make the choices. So I also have my Rust Monster vendetta. <laughs> <laughs> 
I am not alone in that. I feel I feel I, better now. Yeah. Which coincidentally, you know, the the solo adventures that you get with Call of Cthulhu, and you know, likewise, you know, the the newer RuneQuest starter set and whatnot, is how I introduce my son to Call of Cthulhu. I would run run him through the solo adventure. So it does. Uh, it is, you know, just because it's a solo adventure, don't think, you know, for those listening that you do necessarily have to do it yourself. It is enjoyable, but it is a nice way to introduce in a duet term to familiarize yourself with the rules and people into the game uh, without overcomplicating it until you can get some time with the, you know, with the nuts and bolts of the rules. So fantastic. Yeah. So, so thank you. I, I do appreciate that. It's, you know, like the, the game book solidarity, maybe there's another one out there somewhere besides you and I. So uh, the, the search is on. Um, I'm going to take the, the lead here, and I would like to talk to you a, a bit about uh, your book, uh, Call of Cthulhu Berlin, uh, The Wicked City, uh, which um, uh, when did that come out? When, when did you uh, when was that published and it was uh, you know, available was to everyone? 20, that was 2019. 2019. Okay. okay. A couple questions that, that I have uh, in regards to this. So um, can you Give a little summary about what the the book is. It is a it is a setting book within Berlin, but it is more than that. I mean, and to me, it, it is a lot more than that because I'll, I'll get into that later. But just a brief summary of um, you know what Berlin is in regards to the book itself and what it provides to Call of Cthulhu. You know, the working title uh, of the project when I was writing it was Secrets of Berlin. For folks who are familiar with the you know sort of the nineties and early 2000s uh, Call of Cthulhu canon, there were a lot of sort of secrets of books that came out. New Orleans. And um, yeah. yeah, and so that was kind of the idea was to just, you know, do the same treatment for Berlin. So the first half is, is yeah, information on the city, its inhabitants, the climate of the 1920s, the Weimar Republic era in Germany, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of adventure seeds, of course, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then the back half of the book are three um, pretty meaty scenarios. You know, they're not one shot. They're not one session scenarios for sure. And no. And, um, and theoretically you can combine them into a campaign, uh, Mm -hmm. which is some, some play testing did that other play testing ran them as one shots, uh, but they do sort of, in, you know, they talk to each other because there's there's resonances that go throughout the scenarios, you know. So an NPC you meet in the first scenario might return in the third one, but there'll be sort of a weird mirror image of, you know, who you knew in the first scenario, that kind of thing, you know. So anyway, that's the basic idea is is it's kind of a, you know, scenario, uh, yeah, scenario pack slash setting guide. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a bit of... Uh... I guess you could say lore to it uh, that uh, is discussed um, in, in regards to how you went about writing this book. And um, w- one of which is the research that went into, you know, the the book itself. I mean, the the history involved within it, it is obviously well-researched. A lot of time and care was involved in this. What was it and how did you go about doing this? Because I, I'm I'm going to spoil the show here is, if I'm not mistaken, uh, out of everything that you've done to research this book, one of the things that was that was never done was is at the time, or at least upon the completion of it, you had never been to Berlin yourself. Is is that correct? That is correct, and that is yeah. still the case. Yeah. Uh, okay. You know, thanks to the pandemic. Yeah. Um, but um, 
Yeah, no, I, I, I have yet to actually go to Berlin. Mm-hmm. And my interest in the setting actually goes all the way back to when I was first getting into gaming. And I, one of my earliest games was GURPS. And I had the GURPS horror source book. And there was just a little sidebar in it that said the Weimar Republic is an underutilized setting for horror. And so <laughs> I spent the next 20 years waiting for somebody to write a source book on the Weimar Republic <laughs> for horror. <laughs> and I eventually realized that was going to have to be me. Uh, so, you know, I've, I've always had an interest in, in like sort of German history. You know, I have a degree in history. So I think, you know, that came in handy when I was writing the book, just in terms of research and stuff. I've done freelance educational writing for like history textbooks and reference books and that kind of thing. So mm-hmm. I was able to apply those skills which allow you to sort of fill in. The thing with Berlin in the 1920s is there's a lot that's changed in the last hundred years, let's just say, you know, um, especially in that city, you know, it's just had whole sections uh, completely wiped out and rebuilt, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, So even if I had been to Berlin, I would know Berlin now, which, you know, has some similarities, obviously, but, you know, there are... In a way, my naivete kind of helped me because I wasn't putting any kind of projection on it. I was able to just approach it like like I would if I was researching a, a medieval history. You know, Right. Um, Berlin of, sorry, Berlin of today is not the Berlin of 1920. I mean, oh, no, no. Not, <laughs> I mean, like you said, pieces, pieces of it. Yes. That, you know, the remnants of 1920s Berlin that survived, you know, a world war um, then. Yeah. The, the Iron Curtain and everything else mm-hmm. and then the falling mm-hmm. of it and then, you know, all kinds of political upheaval between then and now. Um, mm-hmm. It's amazing what what you can do with research <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, the research and then compile it and codify it and put it in writing because because like you, I mean, I never actually finished my um, degrees, but I, I was pursuing mm-hmm. Scott knows I was pursuing two master's degrees in, in two different history disciplines. Yeah. So I, I can appreciate well-researched material. Yes, kudos to you for for putting together some fantastic research there. Well, thanks. Um, yeah, yeah it, it was it was a goal for me when I was setting out to write the book was to just really, yeah, do as much as I could there because I think we've all had that experience of getting a source book for a game that's set in the real world. And it's just kind of like, I could have found that set out on Wikipedia, you know, I, <laughs> right. You know, like, yeah. I wanted to dig up some gems and, and fortunately I was able to, and, and partly that is just because that era of Berlin has been extensively written about uh, and, and also in English, which is very helpful. I mean, I have some German, but you know, which was okay for like kind of muddling through uh, a few sources here and there, but, you know, primarily, you know, my sources were in English or translated and so uh, that was a tremendous help. I've I've worked on other projects where you know not as you know not as much material was available, and and, and you know you you feel that difference acutely. <laughs> oh, I, I know that all too well. I yes. do feel that it is almost become an expectation of a lot of the Call of Cthulhu games, as far as the the extensive amount of research that is involved in these books that are set in a uh, tumultuous historical era, uh, you know, uh, most recently with uh, Children of Fear, uh, which I played through that campaign, and uh, likewise reading Berlin, I'm, I'm running the, the Masks campaign and the other books, and it's one of the things that I've always said to other people is, is yes, you do get a 
wonderful adventure. You do you get this, uh, you know, this storyline that's going to guide you through, you know, whatever the machinations of, you know, the creatures or the mythos or the aspects of, you know, the Lovecraftian horrors that you're dealing with. But you're also getting a very researched, uh, very well handled uh, historical uh, guide through these errors. I mean, you you walk away not just having a good time, but you're also learning something uh, that you never really learned before, unless, you know, this is your specialty. When when I had finished Children of Fear, there was so much about that part of the world during that time that I didn't even know existed. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm a, a child of uh, American public school, so these things aren't really focused upon unless you specifically look for it in higher education. And discovering these things later in life is is a joy. And it also makes it almost like you could have these adventures in these different time periods, even without the Call of Cthulhu aspect and still have an amazing time uh, existing. And most especially within the Berlin book. I, I, I am going to gush a bit here on this, so I hope you're prepared. But um, uh, yeah, so I, that's one of the things that I, I'm finding that uh, as more and more of these source books and the, these adventures come out from Chiasm for Call of Cthulhu, I get excited because I have these expectations that I'm going to be learning on top of just enjoying the game and, and finding out something new about our historical past that more than likely wouldn't have been crept up if you and, and others like uh, Lynn Hardy and whatnot aren't going through this extensive research to create this immersive experience within this time period and not just saying you're in Berlin in 1928. It's a bit rambunctious and, you know, here's a tentacle monster. Go have fun. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah, it's it's a really appreciate that. But I also feel sometimes it's it's creating this higher and higher standard this threshold keeps rising that uh you know if if you're you're not allowed to just you know throw out something of just you know for you know shits and giggles so to speak uh because you'd be like oh yeah. <laughs> where, where, where's where's the 18 months meticulous research this, that's that's what i'm here for okay so back back into uh the aspect of berlin itself so i've been spending some time with the book I'll, i'm gonna you know gush a little bit about on the book itself and I was looking for a way to kind of summarize my feeling of it. And this may not do it justice, but uh, one of the things that, that you know, as I, you know, I didn't complete the entire book, there's the last adventure that I get through, but uh, compared to the other source books, and mind you, I'm not as familiar with the older ones. This is, you know, seventh edition primarily, is it is wonderfully decadent in how it presents Berlin to the Keeper and how the Keeper can relay that to the players. The city is alive and just 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 on the verge. It seems like it's constantly on the verge of just utter chaos and anarchy. Uh, but the decadent nature that everyone seems to just kind of share in in, in here is kind of keeps it together until, you know, the, th the things change further down the road um, with the variety of lead ins that cause it to collapse on itself. But it just creates this this thriving world that is perfectly suited for all of the you know lovecraftian horrors to just thrive and build and just exist within there it makes it an easy setting much like how new orleans can be to a certain degree to just kind of pop anything you want in there um, and just have it shine uh, within the city but similarly even if nothing really happens in, in that aspect this setting within berlin can just be an absolute blast to play in on its own. 
to experience all of these things as you've detailed, all of these factions, all of these true-to-life things that you're just going, this actually was a thing. This wasn't just made up for the sake. And I and I know there within the book itself, there's liberties taken, you know, too, because it's still at the end of the day, it's a game. It's you don't want it to be a dry historical book. But um, for those of you who haven't picked up Berlin, uh, and if you're kind of sitting on the edge, get it. Uh, it is it is just a joy to read. And just as you at the as I'm reading it, I'm you know kind of going, this is naughty <laughs> to a certain degree, uh, and which which you Were don't really keeper see a lot juices of juices flowing. Is that is that oh, what you're saying? Absolutely, it, it was flowing, and you you touch on this in, in other in other setting books and other adventures within Call of Cthulhu. But there's just as you said, there's just something about this this time period in Berlin that's just this perfect um, recipe for all of these things to not just for what you've described in the three adventures here, but you can, you can place so much in here. Like during the masks campaign, you know, it, it, I would mm-hmm. love to just spend, you know, a dominant amount of time here in Berlin rather than the, you know, the, the, you know, just the, the short period before you got to move on to other aspects to, you know, to go, mm-hmm. but uh, to just, you know, I could seriously spend a year uh, running a masks type campaign in Berlin and just have an absolute blast and just have the players be, you know, excited to come back for more. So, so, uh, that leads mm-hmm. me to a question then. So is there, mm-hmm. is there anything on the, on the future horizon for an add on to Berlin? Um, any additional material you've no. got squirreled away in, in the pipeline somewhere that you want to, that, that you can mention if there, I mean, obviously if there isn't anything, there isn't anything, but I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. Um, there isn't there isn't okay fair uh, that's because fair. yeah i had a i had a i did have to cut a lot okay yeah well not not i mean i cut some written material but i also just in the outlining and the and the you know writing process it was like okay i have to cut it here because what was happening is even the stuff that i was you know including was leading to other things that i had to include uh, <laughs> you know what i mean you know like like things that were coming up in my research i'm like oh well i have to include that yeah. you know so there were definitely uh, things that I left out. I was toying with the idea of doing like some mini supplements through the Miskatonic repository. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that may happen. It may turn into, you know, just kind of a, another scenario collection. I'm really glad to hear, you know, that you're saying like, oh, yeah, I could run a year, year long campaign. That was my intention is I wanted to present a city book that was a campaign setting and not just you know, run these scenarios and then it's just going to take up space on your shelf kind of thing, Mm -hmm. you know? And that was actually another thing. I mean, there's some random tables in there for generating details of the city. I'd love to come back to that and write even more random tables so you could sort of procedurally generate the city as you're going Mm -hmm. through it, you know, like that would be super fun to do. So it's definitely, I'm not done with it um, as a, as a setting. I'd love to return to it at some point. And yeah, even on my own sort of, you know, bucket list i suppose would be to run some non-cthulhu games set in 20s berlin like i have the um you know one of the investigator organizations in there the pathfinders which was this kind of scouting organization they're in there almost like kind of as a joke i've never heard about anybody who actually used them in their berlin games but they'd be great for like a sort of uh teenage uh mystery investigation game that wasn't maybe not, like not horror but like you know just kind of um like a gumshoe system game or something you Gotta know take note of that challenge accepted 
Oh, I mean, my my dream would be to get some players together and an entirely focus on uh, this motion picture company. Uh, you know, part of part of that group through this this era of you know this creativity that's going on in Berlin at the time. And as they slowly unravel, as they see behind the veil of the city that this decadence that they're experiencing is not necessarily what they thought it was. And just, you know, then, then at the, at the end yeah. of this, the scenario, there's these lost footage that, that could be found in a future, uh, you know, modern Cthulhu game or something that would roll into, you know, a Delta green type game or something like, you know, what is this from 1930s or 1928 Berlin and whatnot? I think big, but in reality, <laughs> these things tend to never happen, but, uh, you know, one can pathfinders, dream. kids on bikes that could yeah. work. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. You could do a kids that on bikes. Totally bike adaptation. I'm going to take fun. that up as a yeah. challenge. I'm going to go back and reread this, mm-hmm. just the setting information that, you know, cause, um, I'm, yeah. I'm going to take yeah. that up as a challenge for the kids on bikes. So listeners yeah. hold me to that. Cause I need something to do for this fall. So, yeah. Um, it, it's great. Cause they were, they were co-ed too. So you can have boys Heck and yeah. girls, you know, and it's, yeah, I mean it's it's right for gaming yes. potential. <laughs> See, and that's that's what I like in a source book. I like things like this. Uh, mm-hmm. I love the scenarios because I've 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 read the book once, went right when it first came out. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's the source information, the the setting, the source material. Yeah, these types of books that pay dividends for me. These these are the things that become some of my my better, more cherished books where I can take them off the shelf and. Uh, and pull that information and apply it to to different systems, different games. But it's it's those things that are multiversal for me that become the 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 better books the, or the best books in my my collection of stuff. I, I the the adventures in the game uh, I feel are a little bit more daring as as far as some of the other Call of Cthulhu adventures that are out there. I, you know, I'm not disparaging any of the others. But one of the things that I liked about, it, especially the first adventure, um, the the devil eats flies, is Keith and I in the beginning of a of our of the podcast here. One of the things that we discussed was agency and horror. Uh, you know, player agency versus you know PC agency, character agency, whatever the case may be. And we have differences of opinion on how those things occur. But I do like how within the devil eats flies, it touches upon that. Uh, you know, spoiler alert. You know, so if, if you don't want to know about it, uh, you know, jump ahead or, you know, maybe I'll put a timestamp on here. But w- within the game, uh, you know, there's there's a point where, you know, the um, uh, the investigators, one of the investigators can lose control of their character and not just lose control of their character, but they are working to stop uh, them from, from proceeding within the adventure. I'm kind of jumping around here to leave the spoilers to a minimum. And some people... But but what you do within there though is you don't necessarily take away their player agency, their 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 investigator agency, yes, but the player's still in the game as they now get to play this role and make decisions yes. on how they proceed in order to further uh, you know, the the evil machinations of, you know, of behind the veil, which I feel is a great way of, you know, providing that. Because to me, horror is about losing some of that agency you know if you're if you're in full if you're in full capacity and you have full agency you're not going to be afraid of something you know why uh it's the fear of the unknown this i don't know what's going to happen and uh some people like that some people are just like if you take control of my character i'm going to get up and leave this table 
and and others such as myself absolutely enjoy that relish in that fact as as a player and and also uh, a gm and i really like the way how that handles that how it it's kind of takes the best of both sides without you know put giving the power entirely to to either one but still allowing for that agency to be lost to a certain degree so yeah that's that's i really enjoyed that and it it carries through through the other adventures uh to the point where once again, this is not, you know, to say anything negative about it, but uh, yeah, the, these are definitely adventures and the Berlin, Berlin book itself, if you're going to portray uh, the city, this living city to your, uh, to your player characters, you should have a discussion because uh, there's a lot of touchy subjects within this book. There's a lot, uh, yep. both personal, yep. historical, you know, religious, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Um, but, uh, and it's, it's a, it's very broad and you can use as much as, 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 as little as you want. So, yes. so uh, I'll stop. Uh, I'm known to prattle on and on and on with one <laughs> breath. So I'll, I'll stop my gushing here and let, you know, you and Keith get a moment. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that's a, that's a good point. Let's, let's transition over to Pendragon. Okay. So this, this game is near and dear to my heart, just more so than call of Cthulhu. And I love call of Cthulhu. I was a late comer to call of Cthulhu, but I, I was, uh, kind of a latecomer to Pendragon. I got into Pendragon. It was uh, 1994, 95 uh, in fourth edition uh, when players could actually have magic, which was really weird. Um, and during <laughs> that phase of its history, and it was one of the first role-playing games I bought with my own money when I was active duty military uh, outside of D and D, it was one of the first books that I bought when I got like a real paycheck as an adult. So it, <laughs> I have a history with it. It's one of my hands down favorite games. I'm comfortable with the rules. I'm comfortable running it. I haven't run it in quite some time, but I, I could pick it up and still feel pretty comfortable with it. Probably fumble a little bit these days, but still feel pretty comfortable with it. I know as well as everybody else out there that's fans of Pendragon that there is a sixth edition coming. I mean, that's not earth shattering news. Um, it's been announced for quite some time. There was a quick start, what a year ish ago. Um, there was a quick start released on, uh, was it the red blade? There was a scenario released. Uh, no red blade was for fifth right, edition. Right. So the, the sixth edition quick start is the adventure of the great that's hunt. Um, um, yeah. And we're actually, we're actually going to have another, sort of quick start uh, scenario coming out at Gen Con this year. Because, uh, you know, just with the uh, state of the um, global shipping yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, web, you know, it, it, we were hoping to have this uh, starter set out by Gen Con. It's just not, you know, logistically, it's just not going to happen. Uh, but what we can do is get a little quick start booklet printed up domestically in sufficient numbers to have with us at Gen Con. And that's actually going to have a preview of the first scenario from the starter set, okay. uh, along with the so quick my, start rules. So my so. sad panda face becomes happy panda face. <laughs> so I yeah. will definitely, because I'll be at Gen Con <laughs> this year. So that, that makes me happy. Great. Yeah. So for those, I, I know you've talked about Pendragon 6 edition on some other podcasts and some other interviews and stuff, but for Titter Pigs listeners that may not be aware of Pendragon as a whole, or those that and, may be aware, but may not know the differences, in a and nutshell, the, what can you summarize what sets sixth edition apart from fifth edition or 5.2 or, you know, the earlier editions? Is there any any one thing or things that really sets it apart? 
So, you know, much like pretty much every other, you know, BRP game, uh, Pendragon has not changed dramatically over the years. It originally came out in, in 84 and um, for, you know, much like with Call of Cthulhu, first edition is kind of the most different from all the other editions, you know, and we're not even doing um, quite as much, much of a makeover as like say seventh edition Call of Cthulhu had. But what sets it apart was sort of the simplest way to put it is that Greg Stafford, who, you know, considered the game his magnum opus right. uh, of all of his game design work, uh, referred to sixth edition as his ultimate edition. It's essentially the, the culmination of, you know, 35 years of his um, refinement of the game from a mechanical standpoint and his increasing understanding of the Arthurian canon, medieval history, that's all like sort of baked into sixth edition now so that it's, you know, sort of, yeah, it's it's the ultimate Pendragon experience, you know, uh, for folks who are just getting into the game, you know, in the next year or two, it's the perfect time to do so because uh, this really is going to be, you know, the version of Pendragon, I think. As someone who I, I'm familiar with RuneQuest, and I, you know, obviously I'm familiar mm -hmm. with uh, with Call of Cthulhu, uh, I understand that one of the things about Pendragon uh, has is the use of uh, passions, which, if I'm not mistaken, is something that's new to the most recent version of RuneQuest, but uh, is utilized similar within Pendragon. But there's other aspects involved in that. Uh, uh, can you touch on that a little bit? Good thing. And, you know, a bit of trivia is, uh, my understanding is that originally the Passions mechanic was going to go into the third edition of RuneQuest. And when that wasn't going to work for a variety of reasons, Greg was like, well, I guess I'll write this Arthurian game and put him in there instead. <laughs> so, well, that's good to yeah. know. Um, yeah. So, so the new edition of RuneQuest is kind of actually coming full circle on this, this mm -hmm. promise. And, and they're, they're definitely cousins they they have a lot in common mechanically, thematically. They're both mythic games, and you know when you're talking about the um, in Berlin, the um, aspects of player agency. We'll just say, um, I you know kind of a little light bulb went off for me as I was listening because I was like, you know, I think that was probably informed by my by my experience with Pendragon because there's a similar thing there where the passion mechanic can drive you to do things that you're doing as a player, you're not being forced by the GM to do anything, but it's sort of like the more passionate you are about something, the more likely you are to do something against your better judgment or, you know, something that's going to like really have a negative uh, impact on you or your friends or your society that you live in, which is of course very Arthurian, right? It's that that's the whole thing is that the passions are there to drive Arthurian, um, uh, you know, story right. beats. Fantastic. I, I mean, I like the passion system. I like the trait system. I like the passion system. I'm gushing now, right? Because I'm 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 a fanboy. I mean, <laughs> through and through. I I mean, I am. Yeah. Um, I to, uh, this little confession here, David. As much as we wanted to bring you mm -hmm. on here to talk. We honestly just brought you on here so we can fanboy all you know on you. So um, you know we'll, we'll apologize after the podcast is done. Right. But anyways, right. keep go on. Um, Fair enough. Fair enough. So so let's go back to the like for for those those new players that may be finding um, Pendragon, you know, this year, later this year via the quick start from Gen Con or whenever the. Um, starter box that gets released or the core book gets released um, down the road. Yeah. 
for, so for those folks that are new to it or re- returning folks like myself, is the game itself, I mean, I have my own thoughts, but is the game itself geared towards fantasy fans or people that are in, in the history? Um, is it, so that's one question, but secondarily to it, is it geared towards new gamers or like old gamers, like veteran, I don't want to say old gamers, but like veteran gamers, or is it, is there a mix? Who is this game really for? Who is Pendragon for? It is it is for folks who like fantasy. You know, they enjoy the fantasy genre and perhaps like their fantasy a little bit more medieval grounded, a little bit more folkloric. Uh, you know, it's 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 not told. Well, let's see. <laughs> I was going to say it's not Tolkien esque, but it actually kind of you know it has it has resonances right. with with uh, Lord of the Rings, I think. But it's not like that kind of post Tolkien fantasy, right? With wizards throwing fireballs around and and uh, you know magic items for all and that sort of thing. You know, a magic sword and Pendragon is is a very rare thing indeed. And even then, it's uh, probably just going to give you a slight little boost. Uh, you know, it's it's not going to be, you know, like Excalibur is Excalibur and everything else pales in comparison, you know, that right. sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so, yeah, it, it is it is for fantasy uh, enthusiasts, uh, veteran and newcomer alike. You know, I like to think, you know, I'm, I'm very excited that we were getting a starter set out and that it's the lead release for the new edition, which is a first, you know, that we're able to do. Um, you know, because obviously with Call of Cthulhu and RuneQuest, they led with the core books and then the starter set came later. Here we have that luxury of being able to do the starter set first. And it is very much geared towards uh, anyone who's just kind of, you know, interested in, they see the word Pendragon and they think, oh, cool, Roundtable Knights, King Arthur. I like that. Let me see what's going on here. Pick it up. And, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, we all got our start with the red box D D basic set. So it's a similar thing where it's, you know, showing you what it's like to have a game set in this world. Why is that different from other forms of fantasy you might be more familiar with and what makes it special? What makes it fun? What makes the characters unique? Cause that's, you know, of course the thing and people are like, well, everyone plays knights. Isn't that boring? And you know, the traits and passions ensure that it is not every single night is different. Um, one of our little taglines for sixth edition is what, what kind of night will you be? Because that's one of the questions that is asked in the game and that is answered through the gameplay experience. Um, so as far as picking it up mechanically, it's it is the basic role playing system divided by five. So instead of a D one hundred, it's a D twenty. So folks who are used to D and uh, D and have their nice artisanal D twenty sets will be able to use those. And it's just the D twenty and the D sixes. Very simple, very easy mechanic. You know, roll high without going over. Okay, that's it. Interesting. You know, yeah. I, and you, I'm sure both of you can answer this. Is that how the previous versions work utilizing D20 or were they percentile based like the other, other uh, chaos and games? They've always, it's always been D20. Oh. And that, that was part of Greg's objective was just to really streamline the BRP system as much as possible. Um, he And then he wrote another Arthurian game, Prince Valiant, that's even more streamlined. It's It was sort of like a proto indie <laughs> game yeah. that just used coins as a resolution right. mechanic, and, you know. And, so and I have that game. And <laughs> mm-hmm. one of our listeners actually submitted a question in advance. Oh, um, okay. so I, I was refraining from asking. But since you brought it up, <laughs> since you brought up Prince Valiant, I'm going to ask. Um, they yeah. were curious, wh- which is, in your opinion, 
and I already, I think I already know the answer. Mm. Um, but in your opinion, if I get this right, in your opinion, which is the better game, Prince Valiant or Pendragon? <laughs> the better game. Uh, I mean, uh, I have. Keith very, has his opinion. Very objective. <laughs> <laughs> Not to put you um, on the spot or anything. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Well, yeah, I, I, it's apples and oranges, frankly. I mean, the fact that they're both Arthurian is the only thing they have in Correct. common. Um, apart from Prince Valiant being set in a sort of IP, you know, uh, whereas Pendragon, one of the one of the great things with Pendragon and uh, with the setting is that it is, and this is another credit to Greg, was that he synthesized the bulk of the Arthurian canon from uh you know jeffrey of monmouth all the way up through the mists of avalon you know it's all together and it all makes sense uh lamort tartur is the central spine the narrative spine but then there's medieval romances victorian literature 20th you know th white is in there uh john borman's excalibur is in there you know like it, he really brought all these different factors together uh, for the overarching setting and and narrative um but what I like about Prince Valiant is that it is, it was specifically designed as almost like a party game. Like, you know, if you, you know, you're hanging out with family at the holidays and none of them are gamers, you could still bust out Prince Valiant and have a good time. You know, uh, they don't need to know anything about RPGs, you know, just gather some quarters together and you're good to go. Right. Uh, whereas Pendragon obviously is a more traditional, you know, RPG experience. Um, but you know the funny thing about Prince Valiant is it has campaign rules in it. It has experience rules in it. You, right. You, if if you just like your game super light, you play Prince Valiant. Or you know we're actually uh, hoping to bring out more games using that engine oh. in the future. You know. See that so, makes that that makes me happy too. So you're saying that ridiculous <laughs> collector's price I paid for it the uh, several months ago I should have waited, uh, but. Uh, I tried to tell you. <laughs> I, I, I still love it nonetheless. Uh, no, and it was well, it was I have well both worth of my, it. I have both of my Prince Valiant books. So so I think our listener will be happy um, with, with your answer. Uh, so I, I do have two other questions on, the, on Pendragon. One is, Scott mentioned earlier about the Call of Cthulhu starter box set and the RuneQuest starter box set having uh, a solo game in it uh, that was good for learning the rules and teaching other people. And I know we talked about that with the early, you know, the eighties game books and even Menser's red box set, right? Cause you and I both experienced that. Now will Pendragon's um, starter box set have that as well, like the other Chaosium products? Yes. And, and that was, uh, so most of the starter set is material that Greg had written in one form or another that I just sort of pulled together and, assembled into a starter box um he had some he had like a 20 page prospectus on a pendragon starter and that was about as far as i had gotten uh so you know i just took the material and you know made it into the starter set but the one thing it didn't have was a you know solo tutorial so i had the pleasure of getting to write that which you know considering where i started in the hobby being able to write a choose your own adventure solo uh scenario was for my favorite game oh. was, <laughs> was definitely a highlight that's fantastic for me and yeah yeah so and it's the same idea you know you have a you have a sort of very simplified character sheet um and uh, it, it sort of teaches you the mechanics as you go along and also introduces you to the setting because basically you're you're a page 
at the estate of Sir Ector, which is uh, Arthur's, you know, foster father. And this is prior to, this is when Arthur is still squire. So, you know, Arthur as a, as a young, young man, basically, and you go with them all to London, where of course there's a sword that's sitting in a stone. Ah, and the rest is history. So, which leads me to a question about the, the starter set. So, um, within mm-hmm. RuneQuest, uh, the starter set, and I believe the Call of Cthulhu 2, there's, there is a central character. You know, it's, I'm going to talk about RuneQuest, like Vasana. Vasana has appeared again and again in, mm-hmm. you know, in the quick starts and in, in other aspects of the game. And, you know, within the starter set, this, this page that you mentioned uh, within that, uh, are they going to make other appearances canonically within uh, other sources? And also the adventures within the starter set, are they necessary to play through in order to continue within what's going to become the core rules and everything? Uh, or, you know, are you necessarily, are you missing out on certain things if you don't have these rules to ease you into it? Cause some starter sets are like that. Some, they, right. they kind of, there's, there's a wall there where it's like, you know, Hey, by the way, we're mentioning stuff from our quick starter starter set. You may want to go check that out to know what we're talking about, but others are just like, nope, starter set is standalone, core is totally separate, and, you know, enjoy them both for what they are. So the first question in terms of, like, I, I guess, iconic characters, we could call it, um, or, yeah, re, you know, reoccurring characters. The page is left general, is uh, left intentionally vague, right? It's, it's just you. Right. It's your cipher, you know, character. So they do actually, there there is an Easter egg in the first scenario where they show up kind of on the sideline. Um, so if you've read the tutorial, you'll recognize that scene that's happening, you know, um, but other than that, not really, you know, we have eight pre-gens in the, um, starter set, but again, they are, you know, intended as player characters. So take the pre-gen, make it your own kind of thing. Right. Um, which leads to the other part of your question. And one of my sort of guiding principles, uh, as I've been working on sixth edition, because when Greg passed away in 2018, we had his first draft right. material. So that's where we started off from. So fortunately he'd been able to complete the bulk of the, of the core material writing, uh, you know, so he left us with a lot of stuff to work with. And it's just been a matter of sort of shaping that and like, well, how's that going to look as a commercial product, basically, like as it comes out. So one of my guiding lights there has been modularity. I really want, and this might come from my own history as like sort of an autodidactic gamer. Like I had to teach myself how to game and it was very confusing. Like, what should I buy? You know, do I buy the wrong thing? Oh no. Yeah. I know that. I want it to be as much as possible. Yeah. I want it to be as much as possible just um, for the, for the person who's just getting into Pendragon. If they buy the starter set, they don't necessarily have to run out and get the core book right away. You know, they can they can continue on with the starter set and maybe pick up the Game Master book that has a lot more, you know, it's got a bestiary in it. It's got more information on the world, you know, feasting and tournaments and all that kind of stuff. So they can just supplement and write their own adventures if they wanted to. And if they don't care about character creation or having some expanded rules from what's in the starter set, then they don't necessarily, like I say, have to run out and get the core book right away. The starter set is definitely kind of its own thing. It starts on the chronology. So the chronologically in sixth edition, we're starting out with Arthur pulling the sword from the stone. We're going to go back and deal with some, you know, the sort of earlier years, but that's going to be a later project, you know? So right now we're starting out with Arthur drawing sword from the stone. That's the case with the starter set. That's the case with the core book. The core book assumes like previous uh, editions that you're going to be making your own characters and that they're going to be 
uh, knights in the county of Salisbury. You'll be serving, you know, Count Robert. And um, that's geared more towards, you know, groups who want to do like more of a free form campaign or run the Great Pendragon campaign, that kind of thing. Um, whereas the starter set, those are more like that was taking some material Greg had written called the sword campaign, which is a little bit more, mm, you know, dealing with the iconic moments, Okay, you know uh you know arthur's battles and and the foundation of the round table order and uh you know these sort of famous moments from you know from the the stories so that you know folks who don't know a whole lot about arthurian literature by the time they're done playing the sword campaign they will okay <laughs> you know so yeah. that that sounds like something for someone who is primarily familiar, like, you know, I've seen the Excalibur movie and that's going to hit some of the beats they're mm -hmm. familiar with and maybe ease them into it and teach them other aspects of it. So that's that's fantastic. That's kind of how starter sets should be. Uh, you know, some some yeah. hit those yeah. hit some hit those beats, others, you know, not so much. So uh, but uh, yeah, I, I really didn't want it to be crippleware, you know, where it's kind of like you have just enough to play these adventures. So really the the rules that come in the starter set are essentially Pendragon basic. Right. You know, it, it's it's everything you need to play the game, but just sort of boiled down to its essentials. Uh, another early release we're going to be pushing out ASAP after the starter set is a revised edition of the Grey Knight adventure which is a classic Pendragon adventure. Yeah. Uh, it was written by Larry Dottilio, mm -hmm. who wrote Masks of Neralithotep as right. well. And one of the things I really love about it is that it really gives you everything you need um, to understand what is going on in the world. So let's say you start with the core book and you grab the Grey Knight. Mm -hmm. Great, you can do that. Or let's say you started with the starter set the Grey Knight is actually, so the starter set covers the years 510 to 514. Okay. The Grey Knight set in 515. So you can do the starter set sword campaign and then pick up the Grey Knight and do the next year from there. And then, you know, whatever you want from that See, point. I'm loving out. it. I am so absolutely that's, loving that's it. That's that marginal area. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I'm loving it, too, because what that means is when Keith loves loves it, the potential for him running it for me and others, you know, grows exponentially. <laughs> yeah, that's so I, exactly what it means. So and, and it, it means. also nice. it also helps if, if I end up getting it for, you know, for his birthday or Christmas, because there's that obligation uh, that, that comes with that, you know, much, much like I had to deal with with his present. We won't touch on that. That's for another day. But yeah, single versus uh, for another podcast. Yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> One day. I'm right there with you. One day I'll learn that. Oh, uh, Tingleverse, uh, I'll play. Yeah. Oh, yeah no. All right. So, <laughs> go ahead, Keith. Sorry. I'll, I was gonna. I was just gonna ask, like, to kind of like wrap up the like the product line. So you mentioned the Grey Knight, mm -hmm. the the starter kit, the core book, um, the game master book, mm -hmm. uh, the Great Pendragon campaign. Most of these things I have heard either seen in print or um, in articles or heard on other podcasts being mentioned are there any any sure. other things like the gray knight is new to me i hadn't heard that before are there any other things mm -hmm. that are in in the queue uh for the pendragon product line I, I, now obviously i know things still need to go through the wickets and pub, you know publication the shipping woes of the yeah. world and all of that stuff i mean none of this stuff is eminent um things are going to take time and whatnot right. Right. The the five year plan here. What what are we looking at? Um, before you answer, I know like 
like RuneQuest has its RuneQuest uh, core book, and then it has the the Game Masters pack, and it has you know it has its set of what is it three core products, um, and then it has you know mm-hmm. scenario book, uh, yeah, scenario books and things. Are you guys gonna do like a like a like the Game Masters pack? Like with the game master shield and scenarios and tables and all of the the doodads and stuff like they did for RuneQuest. Yeah, and in fact, um, the working title for that is the campaign starter kit, right? Oh. You know, so this is uh, it's it's got the GM screen, of course, but it also has the Book of Salisbury, which is essentially a sandbox setting for the County of Salisbury. Oh. So again, you could pick up the core book and the campaign starter kit, and you would be able to basically start running a campaign of Pendragon with lots of NPCs and weird locations they can go to and all kinds of other stuff without even picking up the GM's book or the Noble's book, which is your sort of estate management level uh, Pendragon. Um, yeah. Can, can I, can I use my old, is it, is the, so I, somebody else had asked me, is the new sixth edition backwards compatible? Scott may have even asked me this. I did. Yeah. I is is it backwards compatible? So like I have, I took some older products that I had, like the Bat- Book of Battles second edition, the Book of Feasts, and and some of these other things, collated them, and I had them self printed into a hardcover book for me to use at the table, because I'm anal retentive like right. that, <laughs> you know. I get it. No, I totally get are it. Are those things still going to be <laughs> useful to me, or are they just relics now? Some are, some okay. aren't, you know, obviously with a new edition. So like the Book of Battle, I mean, you could use the Book of Battle. The mechanics are refined, but like I said, they're not radically okay, changed, cool. um, you know. And and in terms of converting, we're going to have a little conversion guide in the back of the core book for just, you know, how to update your existing characters. And then, uh, you know, it's it's very simple. You can do it on the fly. You know, you can do those those updates on the fly. And so, yeah, I mean, there's nothing stopping you from running using Book of Battle if you really like that super granular, crunchy system, right? But the sixth edition has a new, brand new battle system that's much more sort of narratively focused, runs a lot faster, you know, because uh, my personal experience was my player group tended to groan whenever there's the battle because these tended to be like two hour plus affairs uh, so that by the end, you really felt like you felt fought in a battle. Um, so, you know, it's stuff like that, right. Where it's like, you can, the fee, like, obviously we're integrating the fee system into the core, uh, material now. Um, but like the starter set's going to come with, you know, a few dozen feast cards as opposed to hundreds of feast cards. So if you have your old feast deck, you can use that, you know, we, you know, we definitely want to have some level of of compatibility between the two as much as possible, you know? And and especially when it comes to scenarios, that's very much backwards compatible. Fantastic, because that's that's good news. Because like I have like I have a number of the old the old original Chaosium books, like Pagan Shores and mm-hmm. uh, Knights Adventurous mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so and there's some there, some of those scenarios are meh, but some of them are are actually quite good. So you know, knowing yeah. that they're still yeah compatible is is good news <laughs> yeah uh, for sure and as far as the five-year plan i mean you know oh it, it go it's probably going to go out past five years at this point we have so much stuff ready to go and that's another reason why we've sort of been you know waiting a little bit on getting things rolling because we we want there to be a steady 
uh, cycle of release. And, and at this point, we're now at that point, right, where we've got multiple books going through final edits, art commissions, they're going to be going to layout a little later this year, so that as you know, the starter set lands, the core books come out, you know, we'll be able to just keep it going, right? right? So like the, you know, the campaign starter kit's going to come out, the Grey Knight, uh, we're going to have a new Knights and Ladies, you know, Book of Knights and Ladies is what it was called. So the working title now is Knights and Ladies Adventurous. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be your expanded character creation options and all that kind of stuff. Uh, we're, we are going to have a magic book um, that will allow for magician characters, but in a way that's quite different from how it was in fourth Thank edition um, that fits much more, you know, easily into the Pendragon experience, I would say. Uh, and yeah, just, you know, obviously then the, the new edition of the great Pendragon campaign as well, which will eventually be a six volume set uh, that goes from the time of King Vortigern all the way Holy up to Battle Jesus. of Scanlands. So Last can, I heard it was going to be three you volumes. You can run a, three volumes initially, but uh, but we're going to go back and do the prequels as well. So, uh, you know, we're going to Star Wars it oh up. Oh my God. And so eventually you'll have, uh, you'll have 130 years of material. Can, can you guys just take my credit <laughs> card now? Oh, Chaosium already, already, <laughs> already has mine. So it's, it's good. Well, it's they good have to, mine too. <laughs> it's good to know that the Pendragon line is following what's, what I call this, 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 uh, this Chaosium golden era. It just seems like every other week. Hey, guess what? Here's more stuff that you're going to love and enjoy. So <laughs> I'm just like, you know what? Just here's a direct deposit. Uh, here's my checking account number. Just take out what you need. Mail it to me whenever it's ready. So it sounds yeah. like pen, the Pendragon line is going to be the exact same way. Just don't release them all at the same time, because at that point, it's just yeah. my kids want to go to college someday. Uh, <laughs> my but graduates not, next year. Yes. Oh, well, then then lucky you. Fine. Uh, <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Timing. There you go. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's um, fantastic. I love it. I am going to like I think over the next couple of years, I'm going to be totally fanboying uh, the, the whole Pendragon experience again, reliving my uh, my early 20s, my late teens and early 20s. again. Yeah. See, I'm going to love it. I, this is why midlife crises work well with role playing games. Because, <laughs> granted, as much as we're going to be spending, it's a lot less expensive than you reliving your twenties with a, a Maserati uh, and, and a sure. new, you know, thirty year old younger wife. So, or Ducati um, bikes. And... <laughs> yeah. So, but starting your own exactly. band. That too. Um, yeah. No. I mean that. That's obviously. Obviously, I, I really want to see Pendragon. Um, sort of come back, I guess you could say. I mean, it never went away, but it definitely went to a point where it was sort of an aficionado's game and it was like, oh, you've got to play Pendragon. You know, oh, what's that? You know, I want people to know what it is like they do with Call of Cthulhu or RuneQuest, mm -hmm. you know, like, you know, oh yeah, Pendragon, sure. You know, like it or love it or don't like it or whatever. I want you to at least heard of it and thought about, you know, whether you wanted to play right, it. Right, but not. there's, I mean, as somebody who played it in the 90s where it was, it wasn't quite an aficionado's no. game in 1994-95, but has definitely seen mm -hmm. it become an aficionado's kind of game. And I, mm -hmm. I totally agree with yeah. that. There, there's no reason it can't be... I would love to say I could see it being, you know, parallel to D&D. I mean, because it is, it is a beautiful game, has always been a beautiful game. It tells fantastic stories. It's never been a mechanically crunchy game. It's far easier mechanically than D&D to understand. It tells wonderful stories that most people have experienced, you know, hearing of some sort, you know, uh, Arthurian tales of, of one of one ilk or another. So things connect with most people. Yeah. 
people can connect to it relatively easily. It's just, it's for whatever reason, it's always been a little, I don't want to call it hoity toity or aloof, but it always has seemed to be a little over here where D and D just kind of like yeah. barreled through over this way. And it got left on the, <laughs> to the wayside, unfortunately. I'll, as someone who is not as savvy with Pendragon and, you know, from a consumer point of view, I'll kind of give what the general opinion was from me and other people. And it's, mm. it, it includes what you mentioned there, Keith, but for, for Pendragon, there's two things people understood about it. There's the Pendragon game, and then there's a great Pendragon campaign. So uh, in, in, mm-hmm. in those iterations, it was like, here's this wonderful game. Do you have three years available? to uh, to sit then down and enjoy that. this yeah. and then people kind of went whoa 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 yeah. Yeah. uh but now it seems yeah. like there's going to be in this you know this new resurgence and this magnum opus as you said the accessibility is going to be more open because you're not you don't feel this pressure of like in order for you to enjoy pendragon you have to run this all great but this very uh th- this extended campaign that's going to take up all of your time and people are going to go, no, thank you. Whereas now it's just like, oh, well, you mean I can enjoy Pendragon just on its own? Absolutely. So I think that's what's going to draw more yeah, people in. Thank, thank you for mentioning that, actually, because that that is then that ties in with the modularity thing. So like the reason why the new great Pendragon campaign is going to be in volumes is because, yeah, I mean, what, you know, the average campaign lasts for what, like 10 to 20 sessions, they say, right? You know, that's the thing. And what for whatever reason over the last 10 plus years since the gpc came out um it did become this thing where it's like you have to run the great pendragon mm-hmm. campaign and so time and again i see people starting out which it starts out uh you know 30 years before arthur draws yeah. the sword from the stone so people were playing king uther pendragon they weren't playing king arthur pendragon right because right. they would start in the uther era and then it would peter out sometime in the anarchy before the sword gets drawn so i really want people playing wherever they want in the timeline so as much as like, 130 years i mean god bless you if you want to do that whole thing <laughs> you know but like really what i'm intending is that you can grab volume five of the great Pendragon campaign because you really like the romance and tournament periods. That's like high Arthurian chivalry. And that every volume covers about 20 years. If you're running one game session per year, you know, or one adventure per year, then that's your campaign. Great. I love it. You know, if you want to come back to it later, pick up another volume and do that. See, I love that. And then eventually, if you want to do the whole thing, you know, do the whole thing. But there's no, in fact, I want people to be playing shorter campaigns of Pendragon because there's a great dynastic element to the game, but it is not the be all and end all of the experience. Right. Thank you. Know? you from, yeah. As somebody who is a Pendragon fanboy, um, thank you for recognizing that there is more to it than just committing three years of your life to just playing that game or or more if you add the the entire uther period to it right because right. i've tried to run right. the the gpc a number of times and you're right it just mm-hmm. peters out even forget the uther period just starting with gpc it just it peters out because mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. realize mm-hmm. crap no you're not joking this is going to take three years and then they're just like mm-hmm. meh most big campaigns yeah, do a that big too, commitment. Though, so it does, right. it, it's not the fact that it's gpc totally. it's just any big campaign yeah no yeah, absolutely. I mean, Matt, Mass- you know, <laughs> have some massive that happens with uh, that happened twice. Yeah, <laughs> mine's going to end early Adventure because pops. they they went from New York to Shanghai. Stupid. Yeah, I'm so and the players as, are awesome. Yeah, I know they are, but uh, mine might end a little bit early because <laughs> they decided to go that route, and I'm doing my best. But wow. but yeah, they're they are. Mm, 
they went they hard went mode. hard mode yeah and i wasn't prepared for that but yeah. uh, but anyways yeah. um so um keith do you have anything else you'd like to add we we've taken up a, a good hour of david's time here i just want to see if there's any other questions you have and no i uh, you know you have you have answered my fanboy questions on pendragon so thank you <laughs> So, so before we conclude, um, before we conclude, uh, there's just a couple questions I just like to ask. Uh, you know, these are more personal preferences, really short and sweet. Uh, just one, one mm -hmm. is, you know, which one of the three scenarios from Berlin is your favorite? Uh, the second is, you know, what is your favorite period within Pendragon that you, you know, you yourself enjoy either running or playing in? And third, um, why is uh, George A. Romero's Night Riders? the best interpretation of the King Arthur Arthurian legends. Hey, you're not wrong. <laughs> you're not wrong. I, I tell people to watch that movie because I'm like, I'll answer that All one right. first because it's, it's such a great demonstration of the traits and passion <laughs> system. It's, it's all about these guys who are just completely obsessed and uh, you know, just absolutely wrecking their lives in pursuit of this um, weird ideal. And then other people like, were like, what are you crazy? Like even in their own organization. So plus it's just a lot yeah. of fun. It's guys on dirt bikes, jousting with each other. You can't beat well, that. That, you know? that went off better it's than so I expected. Good. So, so thank you. Uh, Bravo. <laughs> <laughs> um, um Okay, so and I'll, I'll just go backwards. So my favorite, uh, my favorite era to run Pendragon. If I had to choose, I the reason I think I said the romance and tournament eras is I think I do sort of default to that. You know, I mean, fourth edition, the default starting year was five thirty, which is the start of the the romance period, and that's that was my you know I started with fourth edition as mm -hmm. well. So, but it, it really is. It's the era of the you know, high chivalry, high romance, the knights errant uh, going out on quests, you know, there's not, there's, it's like tournaments rather than battles. So it's like, if you want that kind of like very high Arthurian experience, plus, you know, you can see the rot starting to set in, you know, Sir Mordred's about doing his Sir Mordred-y right. things, you know, and, uh, you know, so there's that sort of drama playing out in the background as well. And there's other periods, like if you want the more kind of like knight, military experience of going off to battle or whatever then you know there's other periods for that and then of course there's the the grail and twilight if you just want to get really depressed right. you know uh so yeah no i, I think the romance okay. period is for me that's, that's my happy place and uh yeah for the i mean you know favorite of the three scenarios i guess what i'll say is like i have had situations where someone you know i was asked to run one scenario from mm -hmm. the book for a group and i choose usually i go with the second okay. one um dances of vice right. horror and ecstasy uh because it's kind of a very self-contained um uh, you know story that has a big epic crescendo you know and and it's very it's the most over the top of the mm -hmm. three you know so it's kind of the most fun to run um each of the three scenarios obviously has their own their own flavor right. and i actually just a few months ago ran the third one as a one-off and had a lot of fun with that too but yeah if i was going to choose i'd say so. excellent excellent i mean it's hard choosing which one's your favorite child uh but uh you know yeah it, exactly uh, it just depends on the day like noah you're my favorite currently that's because right. his sister's um, not around <laughs> <laughs> no she was sassing earlier but uh you know such is the way of a preteen uh, wow. but no, no, fantastic, David. Uh, you know, thank you so much. This, this is, this has been a wonderful conversation. And, and as mentioned earlier, I do appreciate you, 
falling for our ruse of uh, just ha- coming here and just being all bunch of fanboys with you. And I, I you know, I hope it wasn't too much uh, coming coming from us. Um, are, are you going to be at Gen Con this year with Chaosium? You know, unfortunately, I'm not going to be able to make it this year, but I'm definitely planning on being okay. there next year when we'll have a lot of cool Pendragon material out on the table. So Excellent. You know, we're going to we're going to have to try to find a way to to make it to Gen Con again next year. As, uh... Well, we shall see. Uh, it's, it <laughs> was a lot to get my wife to go this year, but maybe I might go solo next year. We shall see. Hey. But uh, but you'll be there in spirit as we you know, as we Keith and I will be there this year as we head by the uh, Chaosium booth and, and pick up uh you know the uh the new quick start uh for for so ask, dragon yeah so if you could really? ask mike uh i don't know if mike mason's going to be there or paul fricker or any of those guys this year but uh if you could ask uh if you could ask him to put those uh couple of quick starts aside for for scott and scott and i and uh yeah i'll pass that along <laughs> we'll, we'll be there to collect them up <laughs> And if we can have ours and just tell Pookie no, just for a laugh, that would be fun too, just to see the look on his face. But uh, hi, Ooh. Pookie. No, we're we're kidding. We we uh, we love Pookie. He's he's going to well, be going yeah, with us too. We're so. cool. It's an inside joke because so. he's not. He according to Gen Con, he's not press. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What? A mistake, I think. A mistake, I think. I think it's a big, huge mistake yeah, on Gen Con's be. part. Apparently, they they yeah. declined him a press pass. Also, I don't oh, think he's okay. pushing too yeah. hard because. You know, he that's not, uh, you know, the, the the British way, so to speak. He doesn't want to be a bother. And uh, mm-hmm. but uh, it might get rectified once we're there. So we'll, I hope we'll, so. we'll see. Yeah, he's, but, he's uh, far more pressed than Scott and I. So, yeah, I mean, we, we titter pigs. I'll be wearing a titter pig shirt and pretending that I'm I I I, I, I am pressed. Sorry, not pretending. I just want to make sure so they don't pull it. But yeah. Uh, a lot more, uh, he, you know, he's a lot more pressed than we are. Yeah. So David, anything else you'd like to add before we wrap up here? I guess I would just say with that quick start, you will see a preview, which Keith has also been party mm-hmm. to behind the scenes of, uh, the, the sort of final version of the layout that we landed yeah. on. Cause I know that was a topic that yeah. came up. So, um, I, you know, we were workshopping it as we went yeah. through and I'm very happy with how it looks uh, now. And it's the, gorgeous. I, you know, I think this is the best looking version of Pendragon that, you know, by, you know, several miles. And that's all down to, you know, just Chaosium support of like wanting to put out the best possible version of the game. So I'm really excited for folks to see excellent. that. Excellent. Well, once again, thank you so much for taking time out of your Friday to to, to speak with us and talk about Pendragon and likewise uh, Berlin. Uh, for for those of you you know who are interested in what we spoke about, head over to Chaosium's website. Uh, head over head over to your local game store if they have it. Pick up a copy of Berlin. Uh, you know, obviously, you won't regret keep, it. Yeah, you won't regret it at all. Keep your eyes open for Pendragon. You know, Pendragon news on Chaosium.com and also. Uh, subscribe to their YouTube channel. Uh, you were just, you know, there was just a little interview with you today uh, in regards to, uh, mm-hmm. you know, a, adventurous gaming. Uh, and I forget what the term was. Um, not lawful good, but there's something else that uh, was was highlighted there. So so check it out. And playing heroic characters. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, that was it. Um, but uh, so thank you. Uh, you know, obviously, David, doors always open. We'd love to have you back on again. This has been a, a wonderful uh, conversation and you know as we get closer to Pendragon coming out we'd love to have you back on and talk more and obviously yeah, if it, you know as I if I can get Berlin to the table would like to also you know let you know how how things went with that um, and to talk about other things coming out so thank you so much and uh, we appreciate it Keith anything else no I just like to reiterate what Scott said thank you for uh, spending your Friday evening with us and um, I'm 
I'm going to go fondle my Pendragon stuff that I got over here as I wait for the new edition to come out because I am super stoked to play it and I just want to get the, my hands on that new quick start. I guess it's what it is, right? The quick start yeah. of Pendra or uh, yeah. Gen Con. I mm-hmm. can't wait because I want to run it. And I, and I think I will close. Whenever you say the word fondle, never pause. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, cool. We're going to yeah. lose a few more followers. It's, all, it's all good. We're used our, to this. Our stomachs collectively <laughs> right. drop. Yeah, it's all moment, good. So. Yeah. All right, everyone. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's all good. Right. Well, th- thanks. Uh, thanks oh, for having me. We on. appreciate it's been it. It's really fun. Uh, all right. Uh, anytime. Anytime. I'm Arthur, King of the Britons. Whose castle is that? King of the who?